you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our series through the Beatitudes of Jesus. Today we are talking about meekness. And let me begin by saying that meekness is not weakness. That contrary to the wisdom of this world, the meek, humble, gentle, courteous woman or man of God is not passed over when it comes to blessings and to the flourishing full life. Rather, it is the meek who truly flourish in this world and are blessed. But that's hard to believe, isn't it? In the kingdom of the world, the meek are, are run over. I stood in a good number of lines this past week, most of them at airports. And the more I stand in line at airports, the more I'm struck by the fact that everybody is pushing to get to the front as fast as they can. Uh, people don't let you cut them in line at the security checkpoints ever. <laughs> and when it's time to board, it's the privileged people to get to go on when? First, which seems opposite, right? Don't you think they'd want to be off as long as possible? But no, they get to go on first. And when the bell rings, that means you can undo your, your, your seatbelt. You want to be the first person up, standing up, getting your bags. Why? Because you want to be the first person off the line. And when you're standing in front of the baggage claim, you got to kind of box people out because you want to be the first person to get your bag off of the conveyor belt. Of course, assertiveness is is necessary in some situations. If you weren't assertive at the airport, you'd never get to your destination. Um, but we can be courteous without being run over. All that to say, though, that in this world where everybody is pushing to be first, we need to hear this declaration from Jesus that is, it's not about, it's not the, the self-seeking, it's not the self-promoting, it's not the self-exalting person who flourishes in God's kingdom, maybe in the kingdom of this world, and maybe for a time, but not in God's kingdom. It's the meek man, it's the meek woman who is blessed and who will receive an eternal reward of rest. We're in this fourth week in our series from these first words of Jesus' sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins this sermon with nine statements about who the blessed and happy and flourishing people are. Nine Beatitudes. And today we're going to look at the third of them. And here we learn that the meek flourish in God's kingdom and inherit the earth. That's just a restatement of what we read in verse 5, but that'll be our big idea. The meek flourish in God's kingdom and inherit the earth. Again, meekness is not something that's going to come naturally to us, but it's a character trait that should be growing in all who have been made children of God by faith in Jesus. And so... To help us understand and, and grow in this area, we're going to follow a similar outline. I think Trevor did the same thing that I did two weeks ago, and we're going to talk about what meekness is not. We're going to talk about what meekness is. We're going to think about some examples of meekness, and we're going to think about this blessing that comes to the meek. Uh, and also, just to point out, you may have noticed that these sermons on the Beatitudes are much more of a, a meditation on the truth than they are some sort of well-reasoned thought. So we're just going to swim around in this idea of what it means to be meek and what it means to uh, inherit the earth. And that fits with what this is. This feels like wisdom literature, and that's what you do with wisdom literature. You meditate on it. And that's why we're memorizing these verses, right? Because memorization is a great aid towards meditation. And so I want to invite you to read the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, 
with me. And as we do this, we're, again, trying to commit these to memory, not just so we can say, hey, I know the, I've got the Beatitudes memorized, but so that we can meditate on them and understand what they mean and, and see them grow in our lives. So let's say Matthew 5, 1 through 12 together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's say Matthew 5.5 5 again together. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to begin first by clarifying an idea that I emphasized in the first couple sermons that in this series, namely this idea that the Beatitudes are not, are not focused on, on what we do, but on who we are. That they are not a list of tasks to accomplish to enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather they are descriptions of the character that is found in a person who is already a member of God's kingdom through repentance and faith. So the, the point is not that the Beatitudes have nothing to do with our actions, but rather that the point is to drive us to find devotion to Christ and the new birth and the indwelling spirit to be the fountain of our actions. To help us see that, that God's word applied through his spirit is making us into new creations, not simply people who keep a list of rules. Remember that Jesus is always after our hearts, right? And the Sermon on the Mount makes that really clear. He's always going after our hearts. We see this too in his interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus' issue with the Pharisees wasn't with, wasn't with what they did. Because in fact, they did a lot of very right things, didn't they? The problem was that their outward actions didn't flow from a heart that was devoted to God. And, and this is what a character-driven approach to the Beatitudes can help us to avoid. We, we see these statements, they call us to begin with who Christ has made us into and who he is making us into at the, at the heart level. And it's from new hearts that new actions will flow. I want to quote John Stott, but before I do, can I just say the more I read John Stott, the more I just want to read everything that John Stott has written. So if you have not read John Stott, and I haven't read everything, but I think I can recommend anything he's written. So feel free if you're looking for a book to read. But John Stott, in his, sermon, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, so it gives some helpful perspective. He's talking about the whole sermon, and he says this, the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth 
which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. For the righteousness he describes in the sermon is an inner righteousness. Although it manifests itself outwardly and visibly in word, deeds, and relationships, yet it remains essentially a righteousness of the heart. So the good news of the gospel is that Christ has made us righteous by faith. And so Christian growth and discipleship is in, in Christ's likeness is, is the call to become who you are because of what Christ has, has done. He has made us new, and we want to see that grow out in our lives. And the Beatitudes then describe who we are and why the life that we live as followers of Jesus is uniquely blessed and flourishing. Hopefully that's, I don't know, maybe a little bit clearer, but we'll keep thinking about it. But we come to our next beatitude, which we've defined uh, beatitude as a surprising description of the flourishing life that we're called to live as members of God's kingdom. They are surprising. Um, And we're surprised once again when Jesus uh, calls meekness a mark of the flourishing life. He says that the meek flourish in God's kingdom and inherit the earth. So let's begin by saying what meekness is not. And all I really want to say is what we've said about the other ones, that meekness is not a personality trait. Meaning that it's, it's not something that's only found in people who are naturally introverted or quiet or shy. In fact, as I thought about it, you could be all those things. You could be introverted, you could be quiet, you could be shy. You could be the quietest person in a room all the time, and you could be filled with pride, and a self-aggrandizing spirit that is the opposite of meekness. So don't assume that because you're introverted, you are meek. And also don't assume that because you're outspoken or you're extroverted that you can never be meek because it's not a personality trait. That reminds us that that meekness is in the, in the list of Beatitudes. It doesn't function like hospitality or mercy in a list of spiritual gifts. It's not something that some Christians have and others don't. Rather, meekness is a non-negotiable character trait of the child of God. And it's going to be expressed differently in different people, but it's part of our DNA as Christians. It's something that we are always to be growing into. It's, it's something that we are allowing the Spirit to work on us it work in us, but it's also just part of who we are. Did you know the ability to roll your tongue like a taco is hereditary? Can you do that? Who can't do it? You you can blame your parents, right? It's it's hereditary. It's it's something you either can do or you cannot do. The people who like cilantro and people who think cilantro tastes like soap, that's hereditary. It's in your genes. It's just how you're born. Some people can do it, some people can't. And it goes back to the moment you were conceived. And when you were born again as a Christian, God began working in you the character trait of meekness. But unlike rolling your tongue, it's not something that some Christians have and some Christians don't. No, God is working meekness in all of us. It's supposed to be a part of our DNA as disciples of Jesus. It's something that is going to grow and mature in us. So what is meekness? Let's talk about this for a little bit. We can look at this word translated meekness. It's also translated gentle. Maybe your translation says gentle, blessed are the gentle. And it's translated that way in other places in the New Testament. But the first place I think we should go to understand the meaning of meek as Jesus is using it here is where Jesus is probably quoting it from, which is Psalm 37 that we read earlier. Psalm 37, 11. Um, 
That's why we spent the time to read that, that whole psalm. It's a meditation on the contrast between the, the righteous and the wicked. True, wholehearted righteousness flowing from the work of Christ in us is a key theme in the Sermon on the Mount. And so too, Psalm 37 calls us to righteousness and meekness is a part of righteousness. In that psalm, right alongside and parallel to the meek inherit in the earth, we're also told that those who fear the Lord will inherit the land. Those who are righteous will inherit the land. Those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land. So meekness has something to do with righteousness, which is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is talking about. We'll come back to Psalm 37 in a minute, but the next place to look for insight into the third beatitude is by looking at the first two and its position following those. I think it's in seeing this progression from being poor in spirit to mourning for our sin and then to meekness that we begin to understand why the flourishing person in God's kingdom would be meek. Meekness flows from seeing and owning our spiritual bankruptcy before God and from mourning over our sin before God. And when this this poverty of spirit and this mourning over sin are stirred up in us by the Spirit, then they create meekness. You might think about the recipe for meekness. What's the recipe for meekness? It's, It's understanding our spiritual poverty. It's this poverty of spirit and it's mourning for sin. And when you stir those up, you bake the cake of meekness in your life. That's the recipe. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it make sense that uh, we who are, who, that God would humble us and therefore he would make us gentle before him and gentle towards others? That that's how we would grow in meekness is by seeing our great need. I'm kind of trying to pave the way for understanding meekness. So let me offer you some thoughts from a few brothers in Christ that I read. James Montgomery Boyce says that meekness is a subservient and trusting attitude before God. A a subservient and trusting attitude before God. Sinclair Ferguson offered a a more nuanced and therefore a longer definition uh, in a sermon that I listened to. Uh, If you want to try to write it down, feel free. But if not, I can show you later. Uh, He said meekness is a spirit of patient submission and humility before all providences produced by abdication, a giving up of all personal rights and manifesting itself in a spirit of gentleness. That's a definition, right? (laughs) A spirit of patient submission and humility before all providences produced by abdication of all personal rights and manifesting itself in a spirit of gentleness. That's pretty good, but I'll tell you, uh, John Stock quoted the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I found his words most helpful. This is what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. So we understand who we are, and having understood who we are, it expresses itself in its attitude and conduct with respect to others. So in other words, when we, we see... The, the first two beatitudes, meekness grows in us. Lloyd-Jones goes on, he says, the man who is truly meek is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. 
And so in response, Stott says, this, may, this makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all his dealings with others. So, so the idea is that having a proper view of ourselves, being humbled by the reality of our spiritual bankruptcy and grieved and mourning by the reality of our sin, we rightly view our relationship with God and our relationships with other people, which means that we interact with God and with others with a spirit of deep humility, with, with patience and with gentleness. We treat others with gentleness, humility, sensitivity, and patience because we know that they are broken sinners just like us. Sometimes to understand an idea, we need examples. And so let me offer you a few examples of meekness. As I thought about meekness, one, one of Jesus' parables came to mind. It's the parable where the people enter into a party and there's the guy who sits at the front right at the beginning and then he's asked to sit back at the back later on. And Jesus says, when you enter a party, you should sit at the back and then if you get exalted, you get exalted. I think that guy's meek. I think the one who enters the party and voluntarily sits at the back rather than assuming that they have a place of honor at the front, that that's a picture of meekness. That we don't assume a privileged seat at the table, but we allow others to go ahead and we choose to serve them. If you know your Old Testament, then I imagine the person who comes to mind when you think about meekness is Moses. That's because of what Numbers 12.3 says. It says that he was the meekest man that ever lived. Uh, turn to Numbers 12. I want to read this whole passage for a couple different reasons. One is a side note, and one is more uh, in tune with what we're talking about here. But I want to read Numbers chapter 12. It's a shorter chapter, um, so we can understand the context of why, why, why is Moses called meek here? Why is that brought out in this particular story? This is after the exodus out of Egypt, but before the spies were sent into Canaan. We read in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron. This is Moses' sister and brother. So we got family stuff going on here, okay? Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down at a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Verse 10 when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, and whose flesh is half eaten, and when he comes out, half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. 
And Moses cried to the Lord. This is the first time Moses speaks in the whole passage. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. First a side note, and then back to meekness. I just read this story and said, given what's going on um, in our political climate, it feels like the right thing to say. What's Miriam and Aaron's issue with Moses? It's that he married a Cushite woman. It's emphasized twice. Cushite. She was a Cushite. Which probably, most people say, means that she was an African. She was a black woman. And so their issue, at its heart, is racism. They don't like the fact that Moses married someone of a different race. And in fact, God's punishment seems to show that that was the issue. Because what does he do to Miriam? He makes her leprous like snow. God's punishment for her favoring a light skin tone is to make her white with leprosy. And I just want to say, God's word is clear on what he thinks about racism. As we wrestle with and are disheartened by all the division and all the violence that's in our nation in particular, let's just be really clear that God takes this stuff very seriously and that racism is a sin and God hates it. Back to meekness. What strikes me most about Moses in this chapter is how little he speaks. He doesn't defend himself at all, does he? He allows God to be his defender. This then is what a a meek person looks like. It's, It's someone who doesn't seek his or her own good, but entrusts that God will seek their good and instead seeks to show mercy to others. What does Moses do for Miriam? He says, well, let her live with leprosy. No, he pleads with God to heal her. And like Moses, when we see our own sinfulness, we can, we can trust that God will take care of our, our situation. We don't need to fight and we don't need to claw to the front of the line. We can, we can wait on the Lord to be our defender and we can also be sympathetic to others, even when they accuse us wrongly, even when they're family members. We can seek the good of all people even when they act like our enemies. What a wonderful example that the Old Testament gives us of what meekness looks like in a story. Not surprisingly, the other great example of meekness in the Scriptures is Jesus. I follow a guy on on Twitter, and whenever he asks for prayer, for preaching, his last comment is he says, Jesus be big. And I just thought, that's what's happening. That's what I want to do right now is, is let Jesus be big. You may even whisper that in your own heart, just a prayer. Jesus be big in this. Show me how you are the example of meekness and the one for me to follow. And so let's exalt Jesus. The first passage that comes to mind when you think about Jesus being meek is probably Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. You may not know the reference, but you'll know it when I say it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am meek, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Jesus in meekness and gentleness knows our weakness and he comes to us in meekness and in humility so that he can serve us. This is why Paul appeals to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He appeals to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's not that Jesus knows his own sin and his brokenness that makes him meek, but rather that he knows ours. That he's gentle and he's humble towards us because he knows how broken we are. He knows what it means to be completely dependent on the Father, for sure. And so he gives our hearts rest, not burdens. He deals with our sin and he offers us a light burden in exchange for our heavy load. Jesus' life shows forth his meekness, especially in his final weeks. You remember he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. On a war horse? No. It says righteousness and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. In his trial and his crucifixion, Jesus shows forth his humility much like Moses when he was silent before his accusers. Peter describes Jesus like this in 1 Peter 2. 22 to 23, he says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Peter says we're to walk in his steps. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, that, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love. And in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we find that gentleness is a fruit of God's Spirit. Jesus was meek. He was gentle. And we are, as, as His followers, we want to be like Christ. But let me be clear that Jesus not only models meekness for us, He fulfills it for us. The Sermon on the Mount is about righteousness, a righteousness that we cannot fulfill on our own. And so Jesus does it for us. Jesus was perfectly meek, and therefore he gives us the righteousness of his meekness. He fulfills his own law because we can't. He dies for our sinful lack of meekness. He dies for our pride. And then having redeemed us, he gives us his spirit so that we can walk in his steps and we can be meek. We're told that the meek and the humble and the gentle will inherit the earth. Those who seem to be last will in fact be first. So what does it mean to inherit the earth? Why are the meek going to inherit the earth? I said Psalm 37 is key. And if you go back to Psalm 37, what becomes clear is that the future of the righteous and the future of the wicked are very different. This is what we're told in Psalm 37. We're told that the wicked will fade like the grass and wither like a green herb. They will be cut off. They will be no more. They will be laughed at by the Lord. They will be harmed by their efforts to harm others. They will perish. They will vanish like smoke. They will be cursed and cut off along with their children. They will pass away. They will all together be destroyed. That's the future of the wicked. But what about the righteous? Four times we're told that the righteous will inherit the land. 
We're told that the righteous are known and preserved by the Lord, never being put to shame and always being provided for. The righteous are guided and upheld by the Lord. The righteous are never forsaken, they or their children. The righteous are not abandoned by God when wrongly accused. The righteous are given a future. They are saved and preserved. They are helped and delivered by the Lord. I think all of that ties into what it means to inherit the land. That there's this righteousness that comes to us because of what Christ has done and therefore we have a future. We have a hope that we will not be destroyed. The righteous through Jesus inherit the earth. And again, that should even make us more humble and meek. There's a, there's a sense too in which this, this is true now that we have inherited the earth. That even when we have nothing, we possess all things. That all things are ours and we are Christ's and Christ is God's. But this also speaks of our great future hope, doesn't it? The hope of a new heavens and a new earth. The hope that even if we're those that are run over and crushed and killed by the world, we will reign with Christ. The hope that we find in Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of a man. Being born in, in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was meek. And what happened because Jesus was meek? What's the fruit of Jesus' humility and gentleness? Paul writes, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meekness on earth now means that we will reign with Christ in the future. So Paul tells us to have the same mind. Same mind of Jesus. To have a mind and a heart of humility, of gentleness, of meekness. And we can do that knowing that there's a day coming when we will inherit the earth. That we will reign with Christ. And in meekness, we will cast our crowns at His feet. I want to invite you to continue to meditating on what it means to grow in meekness and what it means to inherit the earth. And let me give you three ways that might help you to continue to think on these things. The first is don't neglect to connect meekness with being poor in spirit and mourning over sin. Don't seek after meekness apart from walking through those first two steps. We can't grow in this humility and gentleness apart from seeing our own sinfulness and casting ourselves on Christ. So don't say I'm going to grow in meekness without saying I'm going to grow in poverty of spirit and I'm going to grow in mourning for my sin. The, the second way to continue to think about this is to just keep considering Jesus. To keep looking at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Consider His life, His death, His resurrection, how He modeled and how He fuels our own growth in meekness. And then finally, maybe most practically, I guess, is to be honest about who in your life you struggle to be meek towards. Sometimes it's easy to be meek because we're in public situations. <laughs> we can lay aside our, our rights. But what situations, what people, who, who do you want to run over rather than lay down in front of? Who makes you want to assert yourself unrighteously rather than to be gracious and gentle with them.
Is it someone in your home? Maybe it's someone at your workplace. Maybe you struggle with going to a restaurant and not treating the server with respect or going into other places and thinking that you have rights and not being meek. I don't know who where it is. I'll allow God's Spirit to reveal that to you. But pray and ask, God, would you help me to see the places where I struggle to be meek, I struggle to be gentle and, and patient with others. I told you about all the lines I stood in this past week, especially in airports. <laughs> but another line I stood in was very different in Haiti at every meal with almost 20 pastors who are serving in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, I had to go first. <laughs> Every single time I was either first or second in this line to get food. And when we finished our meals, I could never get my plate off the table and to the kitchen before one of these brothers came and, and took it for me. And this is just a, a small way, but it was a, alongside this humility that they had and a, a graciousness in their spirit and a, a teachableness, just wanting to learn. And even as we, we sang that God through His Word would show us Christ, these guys preached a sermon. They showed me Christ. They were very meek and humble. And so I told him at the end of the week, I said, you guys are following in the footsteps of Jesus who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so like them, may we too grow in meekness until the day that we inherit the kingdom of heaven where Jesus, the meekest man to ever live, reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords.